Jonah 3, and we'll begin our reading there at the first verse. Hear once again the word of our God. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent? And turn away from his fierce anger, that we perish not. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to us this evening from his word. We are taking up this third chapter. Of the prophecy, and as I've said to you now several times, this text has not been given to those who simply have some passing interest in religious history. This is a manual on repentance. This is a tutorial on how a sinner is to approach God. And the way in which we are tutored is, of course, through these examples or through these vignettes. You, you have, of course, the mariners doing what Jonah could not do in the beginning of chapter 1. Jonah was bent on rebellion. The mariners set before us the first example of repentance. Then in the second chapter you find a penitent prophet, here exemplifying not the antithesis of repentance, but genuinely a character of a soul that is truly brought to God. But as we come to this third chapter, we keep that theme before us. That here we have yet another example of what it is really to approach God. Contrite, humbled under his hand, and supplicating for mercy. This is how we approach the third chapter. Now as we do so, there are a few things that we need to keep before us. And the first is that the means that produces this great repentance. And we have that given to us in the fourth verse. It's really a summary of Jonah's preaching. Jonah called, now the obedient prophet, goes through this imposing city proclaiming, yet forty days, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then you have, really from the fifth verse to the ninth, Nineveh's response to that preaching. And that's really what we have in the text. We have Nineveh's disposition And we also have the degree of her disposition given to us in this fifth verse. So the people of Nineveh, it reads, 
believed God. That's their inclination. That's their disposition. They believed God. Now, I want you to note, friend, at the very onset, the writer is very clear. They are hearing the voice of Jonah. They're hearing the voice of a man. But note that the text does not say they believed Jonah. They believed God. They discerned the voice of God through the preaching of the word. This is what the text highlights. And everything we have to understand flows from this. Really everything that flows, not only in the fifth verse, but right through the third chapter. All of these things stem from this very simple fact. Under the preaching of God's word, the Ninevites received it as the word of God. And thus, all that follows are simply the fruits of that belief. And what does follow? Well, you find here a fast proclaimed. It is, as it were, the public effect of this belief, of this faith. And we're not even told just that there was a fast. Look back, if you would, at the fifth verse. We're told also something of its degree. It says here that they are also a people who put on sackcloth. The sense there is, we're getting a sense that there's a depth to their feeling. There is a poignancy to their pain. This is something that is deeply felt. And not only deeply felt, but as you look to the last line, the fifth verse, we're told it was universally felt from the greatest of them even to the least of them. Their disposition was to believe the word of God. And here is its degree. It was deep. And it was universal. Now friend, as I said to you already, When we approach this text, we can't miss that this is a text that is teaching us how we are to approach God. And as we approach this third chapter, that remains true. But the reality is, friend, the reality is if we take the text in this way, this third chapter says hard things. It certainly said hard things to the initial recipients of this text. It certainly said hard things to an Israel that had once and again, time after time, refused the Lord's word, who remained impenitent in spite of all the manifold calls of God to return to him. This text says hard things to them, but but friend, of course it says hard things to us. But even as it says difficult things, as we look at this third chapter, the Lord would not leave us without comfort. And I pray that we find both of these things even this evening. What you have here in this text, as it is a vignette, an example of those who have turned to God, a very simple truth. And that is just this, that fasting adorns and marks believing penitence. Fasting adorns and marks believing penitence. And I want us to see that under these three headings. I want us to consider, first of all, the means, then the matter And lastly, the manner of this fasting. And first of all, then, the means. As we look at the fifth verse, we're told here, very pointedly, what it was that incited this response. And it was simply this, they have believed the word of God. Now, the word there, you have to understand, is it's really emphasized. If if we were not given this word, we could have inferred, of course, that Nineveh believed the preaching. But the Spirit of God would not allow us to infer this. 
It would underscore the fact that everything that follows follows from a people who really do entrust themselves to the Word of God. The word there that is used in the original, it's a word that is elsewhere translated in things like verified or established. This is what the Ninevites did. They heard the Word of God, and because they discerned it was the voice of the one who cannot lie, they were willing to say of a truth, this man speaks truth. Certainly, this is the voice of God. They testified, as it were, in their own hearts, that this is true, that which they heard from the Lord's prophet. God says, it is so, faith responds. I then must affirm that it is so. And this is precisely what Nineveh does. But the question, of course, is, well, to what word does Nineveh entrust itself? And it's a striking word, isn't it? It's that word that's summarized for us in the fourth, chap- fourth verse, rather. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. They believed that word. They affirmed that word. Something to them that was entirely future. Something to them that must have been otherwise unthinkable. They really believed that this was the voice of God. This great city. Grave in antiquity. Grave in strength. Hardened and great in sin. They really believed that it would be destroyed in 40 days. Now friend, as this stands for us as an example of true repentance, it teaches us that faith in God's word really is the efficient cause of all that follows. And as we're looking at this fifth verse, the principal effect is that of fasting. It is faith in God's word that is the efficient cause. The thing really that drives fasting here. The word of God will not leave us with any question at this point. Faith is always first, and is always the grounds for the fasting that we see in this text. And really, of course, this shouldn't surprise us, should it? There is no real fasting, like there is no real worship without real belief. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For He, says the Apostle, that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And striking, of course, in Hebrews 11, what I just read to you was the context of worship. He's there referring, of course, to Cain and Abel. Now, as we consider this, that their belief in trusting themselves to this word is really the cause of their fasting, the very means that God uses to actually cause them to move in this way. Well, friend, there are certain principles that we can deduce from that. This fasting, because it is a religious duty, this fasting, because it is really a response to the word of God as a spirit-wrought faith is imparted, Well, friend, we should expect that there are various things at work all at once. There are various principles, themes that are behind this text. And the first thing is, of course, that as they entrust themselves to this word, they are really approving, of course, that the word that they have received is from the God who is altogether righteous. This is the word of the righteous one. The one who never deviates from the truth. And friend, I want you to note this. In this third chapter, there is no defender of Nineveh. Isn't that striking? This great city with these multitudes of people, 
None turn to God's prophet in the text and try to defend Nineveh from all of Jonah's preaching. It is the voice of God. And if God has said that we are so deserving, then we are so deserving. All his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. He will not lay upon man more than right that he should enter into judgment with God. God, the righteous judge in this text, says, Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so the assumption, of course, is it is deserved. It is an act of righteousness on God's part to do so. There are none who really believe the word of God and are contrite without believing this first. That the word they receive is from the God who cannot lie, the God who is righteous and always judges righteously. And so, friend, the Christian is no different. Let God be true, but every man a liar in this case. If God says that such things are worthy of his indignation, then they are worthy of his indignation. Because he is a righteous judge. But then, friend, not only is it the case that they, of of course, recognize, acknowledge the righteousness of God, but with that comes the acknowledgement of sin's heinousness. The reality is they they are also affirming what God thinks of sin when they stand contrite before the Lord. When they approach God in this way of fasting and humiliation, they are saying that we see sin. We see sin, or rather we agree with God's assessment of sin. Nineveh shall be overthrown. And why? Well, friend, at least they should discern this much. If this God, before whom the heavens are not clean, how much more abominable and filthy is man who drinketh iniquity as though it were water? Filthy and abominable. That is Jehovah's assessment of sin. Unclean. Not normal. Not attractive. Not alluring. But altogether unclean. Abominable. You see, friend, the Christian comes before God in this way of humiliation, believing that he has coveted the unclean thing. Whatever his sin is, it is truly unclean. God's assessment is right. It is filthy. It is abominable. But not only is that the case. In fact, really, if we left it there, that really would not be a cause for fasting. It's that third step that's so requisite. Note the text. Jonah goes to the city and he preaches, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Nineveh, not Edom, not Babylon, not even Rome, not Carthage, but Nineveh. Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the sense is there that the Ninevites recognized personal guilt. They recognized that Nineveh had sinned. That Nineveh was rightfully under the wrath of God. In other words, friend, what they've done is they've not only recognized that sin is heinous, 
But they've located themselves in that sin. Well, friend, that's the hard thing. It's quite easy for us, isn't it, to look at abominations that are now praised, paraded through these lands, and shake our heads. We can even feel and can grieve as we see such things. But by experience have we not learned it is so much harder to find our own sins abominable, filthy, to be truly as grieved over those as we ought to be. We don't locate ourselves very often in that which is filthy, that which is abominable. But Nineveh does. Nineveh recognizes that she is rightfully singled out, rightfully described as those engaged in heinous crime, rightfully under the indignation of a righteous God. But again, friend, if we left it there, if that's all that we had to say, that still would be insufficient to explain why Nineveh is doing what Nineveh is doing. What do I mean? Well, friend, as you look at this text, you find a city approaching God. And you remember that text that I read to you from, from Hebrews 11. The requirement to approach God aright is with faith. Well, friend, here you have Nineveh approaching God, and according to the 10th verse of this third chapter, they approach God rightly. They approach God sincerely, which means then that they approach Him in real, spirit-wrought faith. Now, as you look at Jonah's preaching, as you look at that summary that's given to us in the fourth verse, you may wonder, well, well what really could be any grounds for hope from that particular from that particular strain of preaching? All that he's preaching is that Nineveh will be overthrown in 40 days. She will not see day 41. That's his preaching. What I think is helpful is to remember, as our older writers so often reminded us, that when we come to scriptures like this, underlying them, and this text is actually a proof text to the very point, underlying them is that condition, that qualification, that when God makes such threats, when he promises such judgment, Always behind them is the caveat, unless you repent. I'll read you just a very brief quote to that extent. Robert Bruce writes, Unto all the threatenings and promises of God there is a condition annexed, which condition is either secretly enclosed in the promise or threatening, or else it is openly expressed. Namely, except ye repent. The Ninevites, as they had a real work of grace brought in the soul, they discerned that much. And so, friend, they go to the Most High. This righteous God whom they acknowledge they have offended. And they go, as we'll find in a few weeks' time, in the spirit of verse 9, who, says the king, can tell if God will return and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. You see, friend, real fasting, we're told here, includes all of these things. It includes, of course, an acknowledgement of the righteousness of God, a real sense of the heinousness of sin, 
and ability to locate oneself in that which is unclean. But it also includes, and it must always include, a real faith lodged in the promises of the gospel. There is no real fasting without all three, or all four components. No real fasting at all. A friend, that brings us to our second point. And that is the matter. The fast itself. The text tells us they proclaim the fast. And the word there is derived from the ideas of humiliation and even oppression. The idea that's in view as we come to to various texts of scripture, Jonah included, that give us public fasts or private fasts, is that of affliction. In fact, it's given to us explicitly in Isaiah 58. A fast day is, says the prophet, a day for a man to afflict his soul. That's the root word for the word fast. Now, friend, of course, the formal definition of a fast is to abstain from food. But I want you to notice how the Ninevites extend this. And this really gets us to the heart of what real fasting is. What really is a mark of true repentance. Also, they put on sackcloth. And the sense there, the importance there is not so much the garment. It's what lies behind it. They abstained from other comforts that were otherwise lawful in this moment. They were not willing to take to themselves temporal comforts in this moment. They would lay low before God in every way that they could. Now friend, as we look at this text... We see here very plainly an example that believers fast from a heightened spiritual sensitivity. Believers fast from a heightened spiritual sensitivity. And the reason why I say that, friend, is as you look at the text, Jonah does not instruct them in these things. Do you note that? There's no indication from the text that Jonah has led them through what is proper to genuine fasting doesn't do that at all. In fact, what the text highlights is simply that Nineveh has done this. Yes, as the Spirit of God has worked and led her to believe the preaching of the gospel. She's done this. She's done this of her own volition. And really, friend, when we think about fasting, we should never be too far away from a text like this. What I mean by that? Friend, is when we think of fasting, too often I think we think of it in terms that are far more formulaic, almost contrived. You don't find that in the text. Fasting is not, in principle, something that is really contrived or superficial. It's something that arises very naturally, very organically, from the spiritual condition of one who believes. What do I mean? Take Psalm 102 just for an example. Here's the psalmist's cry. My heart is smitten and withered like grass. This is the psalmist weeping over Jerusalem, you remember. That's the context of Psalm 102. He says, my heart is smitten and withered like grass. He sees the cause of God and it burdens him. And what's the effect? The very same line. He writes, so that I forget to eat my daily bread. Note that, friend. How organically, how naturally the one line leads to the other. That's the very kind of thing you have in this text. These are people who are genuinely more spiritually sensitive than they are attuned to their own physical needs and comforts. 
And that's the foundation of this fast. This is not something that was contrived, friend. I hope you understand that. This kind of fast that sets before us an example is really a fast that is derived from a spiritual sensitivity that is genuinely and thoroughly heightened. You see, friend, as you look at this passage, as challenging as it is, these ones are crying, as Jacob did, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant, not even my daily bread. That's the kind of thing that lies really at the heart of those who would humble themselves, who would really fast to the Lord. It really also includes that principle, doesn't it, that it's the Lord's loving kindness that is better than life, that his love is better than wine, that motivates such fasting. You see, friend, the principal desires of Nineveh at this moment are spiritual and not physical, and that's the point. That's the point. We will not understand fasting, not at all, unless we grasp this, that real spirit-wrought faith is that which inclines the soul to become so spiritually attuned to its real needs that, as the psalmist says, in a sense, we even forget to eat our daily bread. My friend, as we look at this text, it does, of course, remind us that we must be a people then who meditate on those greater needs. If we don't think on those greater needs, understand we will have no appetite for their fulfillment. We'll have no inclination for that mercy that would meet them. We must be people who meditate on what we need. And really there is no fasting unless we have a lively sense of what we require. But thirdly and finally, we do come to the manner, and this I'll insist on a bit further. You'll notice that the text highlights not just that they proclaim the public fast, but as we said before, there, the depth of this fasting is something the text highlights. And what we find here is then that Nineveh's humiliation is something that is deep, not superficial. It's not a veneer, it's not a cover. It's something that is very much touching the heart and the nerve of this city. This is sincere humiliation before the Lord. And that brings us back, doesn't it, just for a moment, to those who would have first heard this text. Those who would have first received this message. This this was a people, you remember, described by the prophets, a people, Israel I'm referring to here, who had forgotten how to blush. That's the way the prophet says this. They were a people who no longer blush over their own sin. They had received the Lord's messengers time and time again, showing them their aggravated guilt. And yet they could not tremble before the Lord. Those were the initial recipients of this text. A, A people who had often heard the Lord expostulating for them all of the heinousness of their sins. And yet they were stones under such preaching. They could not blush. And yet, what do you have here? You have a pagan city steeped in sin 
and in a history of rebellion against God. And suddenly you have a picture, a remarkable picture of genuine contrition, real humiliation before God. How would that challenge Israel just for a moment? Uh, Nineveh did not have the benefit of, of the constant, as it were, stream of prophets coming to them and giving them the word of God. Nineveh didn't enjoy the means of grace that Israel enjoyed. And yet in this moment she receives just once the preaching of God's word and see what the Spirit of God does. They blush. They weep. And they really approach God with a real sense of their guilt. And with a real faith in the word of God that has been preached. It certainly puts to shame, doesn't it? Not just Israel, but ourselves. Friends, should we not tremble that this is so uncommon in our day? It's not that we lack a cause. It's, it's not at all that we are a people who have no reason to fast. It's not because we don't have great spiritual needs that should lead us to forget to eat our daily bread. We partake. We partake in that coldness and that deadness that is all around us. When we, when we look at fasting in this text, there are several points that we can't miss. When this text would have come to Israel, it came to a generation to whom the Lord said, You are a people who find pleasure in the day that you fast. You exact all your labors. What the Lord is saying there is you are a people who only fast formally, and even at that you fast incompletely. There's no real and there's no genuine fasting among you. There's no real and there's no genuine approaching God in humiliation and contrition. It's a show. It's a facade. When you fast, says Christ, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Christ says there are those who fast simply so that they may be seen to fast among men. You see, friend, when we come to Nineveh, we have the antithesis of both cases, don't we? We have those whose behavior matches their spiritual disposition. They believe the word of God. And so they're humbled under that hand. Uh, Allow me to close with just a word of application. Friend, we are a people who often and who pervasively are confronted with the great abominations in our land. And we marvel, don't we, that the world seems to be so hardened to the thought that their sins are unclean and filthy in the sight of a holy God. And we can say without any fear of future contradiction, that this is a generation in which the hardness of hearts is great and humility before God is low. 
But just meditate for me just for a moment. Just for a moment. Not what this text says to them, but to us. And why is it that public fasting is so uncommon? Why is it that if there is public fasting, it's only because we either desire some physical thing or we're seeking to come out from underneath some physical affliction? Those, of course, are lawful reasons to fast. But where is the fasting of Nineveh today? And I'm not asking about the Church of Ireland. I'm not asking about the Presbyterian Church. But of ourselves. What is the Lord saying to us when Nineveh stands as an example and even rebukes us? Beloved, our forebears were often engaged in this work. The days of fasting and humiliation were very frequent. And why was that? Well, friend, it was not because they were simply a people addicted to religious behaviors or not because they were simply engaged in ritualism. It was because they had a lively sense of their need for mercy, a lively sense of the heinousness of their own sin, a lively sense of their own need to be humbled before God. Now, I say all of those things to tell you that this is not a sermon where I'm encouraging us as a congregation to commit to congregational fast days. Perhaps that's something that should come, but that's not the point of the sermon. The point of the text is not even really fasting itself. The point of the text is just this. When those who really believe what God says about sin and about themselves, they become more spiritually sensitive. They become more spiritually attuned to those needs than they do even their daily bread. And that's the clarion call from this text. Are we such people? I know these are hard things, and this is a hard text for our generation. But beloved, we must, we must see ourselves plagued with the same kind of infirmity that is all around us. A coldness and a deadness that Nineveh in our text does not have. We are a people who require this grace still. That the Lord would pour out upon us the spirit of supplication and humiliation. We so desperately need it. And beloved, this is something we ought to be praying for. This kind of exercised humiliation before the Lord. Otherwise, friend, none of us stands as an example and a rebuke. But there is, comfort, there is comfort from this text. And that is just this. If you do long for that greater spiritual sense, you need only to ask the question, who gave it to Nineveh? It certainly wasn't the Ninevites, was it? It was the Lord Jehovah, who is free in his grace. And friend, in the church of God today, how much do we have reason to hope that the Lord would pour this out? I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, 
It shall be in bitterness for him, as one lives in bitterness for his firstborn. Where does this mourning, where does this spirit come from? It comes from the Lord Jehovah. And so, beloved, if you are a people who long for this, who long to see this work done in your own hearts and lives, you must look to the Lord. And, beloved, you have reason to hope, don't you? You have clearer knowledge of the mercies that are to be found in Christ than Nineveh did. You have the overtures of grace set before you in ways Nineveh never did. This is by the Lord's decree and by his providence that you're under these things. And so, go to our gracious God, pleading that he would work this work among us. And know that our God is a God who is pleased to bestow such gifts. Amen.